freaking auto! This, this is Brock and Saul. Brock Heward and Mark, Matt, Marcus. Sorry about just Mike. Mike. Presented by Carter, Volkswagen, and Ballard. On Seattle Sports. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. Where's like the buff dudes at? Now here are your hosts, Brock Heward and Mike Saul. Oh, what a Friday and what an assembled crew we have in here. Mike Lefko, Brady Henderson, Mora, and Justin. Good little crew. Get this one started. Brady, how's it going this morning? Great, man. How are you? Doing well. I mean, I think we've talked about getting used to the wake up. You've gotten used to it now, right? You're here. You're ready. You alert. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah all things Comprehending considered. things. Yeah. 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 You know, usually when I wake up, it takes me a little bit, uh, but I'm good to go right now. we got a great show. I've always wanted to say that. I always feel like, you know, that's what like the late night hosts say. we got a great show coming up, uh, but we do, and I'm excited. I was going to say, oh, yeah, go on, elaborate, set it up more. What are you excited to talk about? Well, I think we're going to talk to Brock Heward about all the uh, Pac-12 uh, potential comings and goings. We're going to talk a lot of Seahawks. They've got their mock game tonight uh, at 5 o'clock at Lumen Field and plenty of news from yesterday to react to and talk about. Um, so we are, whenever I'm sitting here filling in, you know, there's going to be a lot of Seahawks talk cause that's my wheelhouse and that's what we got on the docket today. I was going to say, let's start off with about 30 minutes of baseball. No, no Brady, <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk plenty of Seahawks as well. Uh, we are going to mention the Mariners though, because, uh, they had yeah. an incredible comeback win last night. So we'll talk a little bit about that, but yes, the show today for everyone tuning in since Brady's here, we're taking advantage of his knowledge and his resources. We're going uh, heavy Seahawks today because there were a lot of takeaways from practice and they do have a mock game today which Pete Carroll has really stressed as uh, an important part of this preseason now that uh, they don't have that fourth preseason game. So I know that's kind of more of a big deal than people think. Like, hey, it's a mock game. What, what do you really get out of this? But I know for the coaching staff of the Seahawks, they really put a lot into that. Yeah, and as you said, a big reason is because you know there used to be four preseason games. There's only three now. And, of course, your starters really only play um, – you know, a, a series or two in that third preseason game, the final one. So, yeah, th- this mock deal is it is kind of a big deal, even though, you know, you, you go to it, you watch it and it's not like a full contact thing uh, with you know quarterbacks are not getting hit. It's not a straight, you know, game type setup with offense versus defense playing 60 minutes. They kind of switch up the format and stuff uh, and you get a lot of ones versus twos. Um, on both sides of the ball, but it is still, you know, a, a, it's the the most game like situation that they've had to this point in training camp, and you know they don't have the big quarterback battle like they had last off season, but they do have some pretty big ones. One being, um, you know, at cornerback with Devin Witherspoon, the fifth overall pick, and the other is center, and we'll talk about both of those position battles today. But um, yeah, it, it's a good kind of progress report for the rookies to see how they're. Stacking up against the veterans now that everybody's in pads and they are playing in something of a, a game-like situation, more so than what you've seen so far at practice. Yeah, we'll get into that at uh, 7 and 8.30, and we're taking your calls at 9.30, kind of uh, on one specific theme, basically your overarching concerns or questions for the Seahawks season, so you can chime in, pick Brady's brain at 9.30, get all your Seahawks questions, but uh, uh, assembled crew, and I guess I'll turn to Justin and Mora for this, or, you know, the texters as well, 866-979-3776, Cade Marlowe. Did he just save the Mariners' season? I mean, incredible moment there. So, Brady, they were down two runs, bases loaded, bottom of the ninth, top of the ninth, because it was in Anaheim. And uh, Cade Marlowe, who is a rookie who has barely gotten any playing time, but now has been more of a significant presence with Jared Kelnick hurt. 
comes up, hits a grand slam, and completely undoes all the good work that Shohei Otani did for the Angels. And it was hilarious, and it felt like Mariners baseball again. You know, it felt like the comeback mojo that they have had over the past two seasons. It might have been the win that sparks the rest of this season. I was just saying to Justin, isn't it crazy that they've had these like highly touted prospects in Kelnick and Julio recently, and this guy that like a, I think week before last Salk was like, I mean, what are you going to do? You could call Kate Marlow up. He's been doing horrible in AAA. He has probably the best debut of anyone, like with no expectations coming in. I was asked Maura, what was more exciting in the moment, or maybe more unexpected? I think that I know which one was more unexpected, but the Colton Wong home run off Duran yeah. in, in Minnesota, or the Cade Marlow grand slam, like both. Didn't think was going to happen, and, and that was not off of some you no, know journeyman no pitcher. That that was a, an all star closer. Am I That's right? That's a guy yeah. who hadn't blown a save all season. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think he mentioned afterwards that no one had hit that pitch out of the strike zone on him all year. So, Cade Marlowe, man, and hundred miles an hour. The, the funny thing, Brady, is that there is now, and it, and it is still popularized because it keeps growing, it keeps expanding. Some tweet, just you know, funny tweet in twenty twenty one that. Uh, Basically said, yeah, it was, I don't know if it was an Angels fan or not. It, it might not have been. They're making fun of the Angels. Basically saying, every time I see, like, Mike Trout had three home runs, Shohei Otani did something that hasn't been done since Tungsten Armo Doyle in 1921 as the Angels lost 8-3 to three to the Tigers. Yeah. And that tweet has just gotten the life of, it own, of its own. It keeps growing. It never dies because of things like last night. There was another absurd stat about Shohei Otani. He was the first guy to have a scoreless pitching outing and have a home run and stolen base in a game since, like, you know, 1900, and the Angels still lost. And that was home run number 40, 40 for yeah. him? I mean, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, and, and it's it, it goes back to the question of what's going to happen with Otani because he's this all-time superstar player, and he's playing on a kind of a, a bungling franchise. And people were floating yeah. around a video of him at the end of the game last night where they were like, it looks like he's trying not to cry. Like, he looks like he's holding back tears. I mean, I'd be pretty frustrated, too, yeah. right? We were, we were trying to think about this. Can you think of someone in football that is so good, yet their team mm-hmm. is mediocre or bad? And I was trying to think about that because I, I knew we'd have you in, and so I could pick your brain on the football side of it. But mm-hmm. there's certainly not a player like Otani in baseball no. who does all that for his team, and his team's terrible. Megatron's uh, the first one I think of when I think oh, of that's yeah. a good one. Like yeah. a team that's, that was yep. wasted. Hmm. There's definitely got to be a couple others. Though. Gosh, there, but there's nobody that jumps out who was who was that like all-time historically good for as many years as he's been doing it that just played on kind of a hapless team that yeah. never could figure it out. Megatron is is the one. Barry Sanders, maybe we're sticking at the yeah. Lions. <laughs> sorry, Lions fans, so many if you're Lions listening. Things. Okay, all the Lions yeah. fans. I'm sorry. Just uh, your franchise is just riddled with great stars that have done nothing. So yeah, just Otani. What he does is transcendent, and it adds the hilarity of the Angels just being middling and incompetent and not being able to take advantage of the tenure of maybe the, one of the greatest players to ever play baseball. In addition to Mike Trout. In addition, in addition yeah. to Mike Trout. That's what's hilarious. In addition to Mike Trout, who he's been hurt, so he was hurt yesterday. But yeah, you have Mike Trout, you have Shohei Otani, and yet the Mariners are ahead of the Angels in the standings and in the wild card race. And it's huge. I mean, they're five games above 500 for the first time all season. It feels like they're starting to turn the corner. We talked about this yesterday because they're winning series, because they're beating good teams. And now you have an opportunity to separate yourself a little bit from the Angels and really. I don't know. I mean, let's weigh in here. Honestly, if you're Shohei Otani, 
And that's the Angels made all the effort in the world to say, look, we're going to go for it this year in this final season you're under contract. We want to put an offering out there and hope you resign here. If you're Shohei Otani and you see what happened last night and all of this buildup, do you really want to resign with that team? I mean, it's it's impossible for me to put myself in his shoes, but I mean, yeah, I guess you would you would like the you know the the sort of show like the effort that they put in, and I know there was a lot of conversation of how much of that was done, you know, to just purely impress him, right, and to to, to show him that you're willing to win. Um, I, I'm curious about like from the Mariners' perspective because they didn't do that, right? Like they the, there was a lot of conversation here about you know should they have done something more to add pieces. How do you feel like players in the clubhouse reacted to that and felt about that? Uh, good question, Brady, because that has been a big topic of conversation as well, and it feels like it's been uh, a rallying cry for them to say, well, look, in Cal Raleigh, we played the cut of him. Uh, we talked about yesterday with Brock that the players have a lot of belief and maybe whether it's internal or external, they were feeling some doubt about their chances. So whatever it's been over the past few weeks since they lost the first series out of the All-Star break, this has been a team that feels like they have found that next gear and that they have kind of closed ranks and they have said, look, it's on us, and it feels like it's paying off. Yeah, I wonder if that would be sort of a have kind of a gap. I mean, we hear it from the other way, like when a team you know adds a player, I remember – uh, when the Seahawks traded for Dwayne Brown, I remember players were pumped because it was, you know, this idea that yeah, the the organization is really going for it this year. And I I just wondered what the reaction would be when it's sort of when there, there's not a big move like that at the trade deadline. But yeah, to your point, maybe maybe there is kind of a galvanizing deal to that. I mean, it's it's easy for us on the outside to look at the results and and say, you know, wow, they've been they've been playing pretty good baseball since then, but. I wonder if maybe there is a correlation there. Yeah. By the way, this doesn't really relate, but we're talking Mariners. And Justin, you brought up the thing to Brady about the uh, death cab for cutie death cab collaboration for yes. with uh, the Mariners. How did that come to light? Let's can we explain that a little bit for the listeners, real quick? I, I honestly don't know how it came to light, but the the band Death Cab for Cutie, who is from Seattle, huge baseball fans. I know Ben Gibbard has thrown him many first pitches. Yeah. Um, they partnered with the Mariners because it's Death Cab for Cutie's 20th anniversary this year in the fall, and they're co-headlining a big tour. It happens to, the game that they play in Seattle happens to fall on Jose Caballero's 30th birthday or 27th uh, okay. birthday. It's on the 30th, and they made a Death Cabbie for Cutie T-shirt. <laughs> they running Cade Marlowe. I like or that. not Cade Marlowe, uh, Caballero on the front, which is hilarious. Wait, are you speaking of that? Are you getting an idea, an inkling about your ranked? Maybe. For today? I mean, we know that we like to lean in Brady here for some music that music yeah. takes. We've done that, so it could it could lead to something like put, this. We're putting some things on okay. paper. All putting right. pen to paper over here. <laughs> we'll put you some know? pen to paper. So you guys will do that. We're going to put some pen to paper. Uh, we also have some key injury updates on the Seahawks. A lot you need to know coming up. Listen to the Brock and Salk Show. Mike Lefko and Brady Henderson with you on Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. Need to know. 15 minutes past every hour with Brock and Salk. Here's what you need to know. Up first. The Mariners are a season high five games over 500 after a 5-3 to three win over the Angels. Kind of starting to feel like uh, they have that resolve, that comeback spirit that embodied the past two seasons. And last night, it came in the form of a Cade Marlowe Grand Slam. Now the stretch. And the 0-2 pitch, swing and a high fly ball. Deep to right field. Renfro going back to the winning track, looking up and Grandma get out the right bread and mustard. It is Grand Salami time. Kate Marlowe with his first career Grand Slam straight away right field into the 
big bleachers. And it's now the Mariners 5 and the Angels 3. Marlowe becomes the first Mariner with a go-ahead grand slam while the team was trailing in the ninth inning or later since, uh, can you name it, Brady? Yeah, I want to say it's Richie Sexton. Richie Sexton, that is correct, back in 2005. Man, that'll, that'll take you back, which I thought was about 10 years ago. It's about 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I, I probably listened to that game on the radio in my dorm room at Western Washington University. Oh, That's we, don't have to, we don't have to think about where we were in 2005. But yeah, it's been a while since the Mariners had a grand slam in that situation. They get the win. They're now just two and a half games out of the final wild card spot. And they have Luis Castillo on the mound tonight in game two of the series against the Angels. Another 638 first pitch. Here's the second thing you need to know. A lot happening with the Seahawks, including Fan Fest. That begins at 4 o'clock at Lumen Field. Uh, gates open. Everyone can get in there, have a good time. And then the mock game starts at 5.20. Post-practice autographs as well. And Pete Carroll, he does put a lot of stock into what they get out of this simulated game atmosphere. Uh, situations, you know, and see how guys, how they respond. Do they take to the learning, you know, the coaching and the learning and all? And do they make good choices when they get their opportunities and, and see how they... I'm trying to make a big deal about it to them, you know, that it's a big test and all that, because I want them to feel uh, uh, some anxiety about it and, and know that there, you know, that there is a test that's involved in this day. Yeah, they're, they're ramping up towards the preseason, so this is not going to be like what you see in a preseason game where they're lining up for 60 minutes and, and playing each other like a normal football game, but it's going to be more structured than you know, just the periods in practice where they go 11 on 11. You're going to see some ones versus twos. Uh, they have a, a way of keeping score. Um, and you're it's going to see full padded football. Um, and I think it's big for the different competitions that they've got going on. I'm, I'm most interested to see um, Devin Witherspoon and how he looks. They've been trying him out at nickel. He's still not leading the competition to start at left cornerback on the outside uh, in their base defense, but he's right there in the nickel competition. I think he's still competing to start at both spots. Uh, so this is going to be a nice little progress report for Witherspoon and the rest of that rookie class. You like the way he phrased that? A little, little anxiety about uh, yeah. the situation? Yeah, I, and I, I think he's saying he wants those guys to sort of start to feel the pressure of uh, a game-like situation. There's, there, you know, there's not going to be like it's not going to be packed at Lumen Field, but you you will be in front of more fans. They will be in front of more fans than they have played, you know, in front of uh, in training camp this last week. A few other Seahawks notes. Uh, Zach Charbonnet did practice yesterday. Of course, after we spent a lot of the morning talking about our concern because uh, it was indefinite. So good to see him back out there. Uh, but Daryl Taylor now out with a sprained shoulder. So now we don't know his timeline to return. Yeah, and, and the word from Pete Carroll was that Daryl Taylor does not need surgery on his shoulder and that he was feeling better yesterday than he was uh, the day before. So um, doesn't doesn't seem like you know something that's going to threaten his availability for the start of the season. Um, and then the other injury issue is still Ken Walker the third, but he's still out with the groin injury. But Pete Carroll said it's not a major injury. They just really need to rest him and make sure that it it doesn't get worse. They don't. You know, that's the type of injury that if you don't let it fully heal. Uh, it can linger. They don't want it lingering, you know, for the rest of, of training camp and bleeding into uh, the regular season. So they're going to take their time with him, and it's a little easier now that Charbonnet is back. Uh, we also learned that Geno Smith will not be charged by King County prosecutors for his January 2022. Yeah, it's been that long since that incident uh, and his arrest on suspicion of DUI. I, I guess on the surface, it seems like, okay, why did it take this long? But you had some details in your story about why it really took this long. Yeah, according to the King County Prosecutor's Office, the delay was due to a backlog. 
uh, with blood test results in the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab. So this was January of 2022, basically right when the Seahawks returned uh, from their 2021 season finale. He was arrested on suspicion of DUI. There was that long delay uh, while they were waiting for the the blood test results to be processed. And uh, those results came back in, I think, April. And they found that uh, his blood alcohol content was well below, less than half the legal limit. Uh, His THC content was also well below the legal limit. And uh, prosecutors decided that they just didn't have enough evidence to uh, prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was guilty of either DUI or reckless driving, which was also on the table. Here's the third thing you need to know. Ross Selinger of Yahoo Sports says that the Big 12 voted yesterday to approve the University of Arizona as its 14th member. So it's clear on that front. It now comes down to the Board of Regents at both Arizona and Washington because UW's Board of Regents met yesterday as well. Brock's going to join us at 730 with more insight on that. Uh, Neither involved voting of any kind, but uh, it did have Washington State head coach Jake Dickert lamenting the state of college football right now. You know, the old question was how long would it take TV money to destroy college football? Maybe we're here. You know, maybe we're here. You know, to think even remotely five years ago the Pac-12 would be in this position, it's unthinkable to think that we're here today. And to think that local rivalries are at risk and fans driving four hours to watch their team play in a road game and rivalries is at risk, to me is unbelievable. And I know our place at the table, but at the end of the day, Pac-12 football and Pac-12 brand, man, if we stay together, is really strong and we'll have a strong future. I firmly believe in that. Yeah, when he says our place at the table, I I think he's getting at Washington State, you know, being in maybe the smallest, probably the smallest market uh, in the Pac-12 and not being one of those schools that other conferences want to pick off. Um, so, you know, he, he sort of knows their place in this whole conversation. But, you know, he's right that it, it's a bummer if you're talking about splitting up Washington and Washington State, not getting the Apple Cup rivalry. You could say the same thing about those you know, any other Pac-12 school, Oregon, Oregon State. Um, you know, it, it is a bummer. Like, you know, we we I grew up here. I grew up rooting for UW. Uh, and to think that, you know, the Apple Cup might not be anymore. That, that that's a bummer. It, uh, it is tough because it's happening so quickly and you're seeing an entire conference kind of just get picked and splintered apart. So we'll uh, have all the updates on that because it feels like more things have to come from these Board of Regents meetings. So that could evolve in the next couple of days. Brock's going to join us as well at 7.30 to weigh in on that. That is uh, everything you need to know. Coming up next, though, Mariners President of Baseball Operations, Jerry DePoto, joined uh, both Salk and Brock the other day to weigh in on the trade deadline and the Mariners' second half of the season. You'll hear that next. It's Brock and Salk show on Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. The Jerry DePoto Show, presented by Seattle Pump and Equipment on Seattle Sports. Let's welcome in Jerry DePoto for our weekly conversation. Jerry, our, our first chance to talk here post-trade deadline. Obviously a fascinating day around the league and, and specifically for the Mariners. You guys ended up being quiet at the uh, at the very end. What did you make of the deadline process in general? You know, I, I thought we were able to accomplish what we set out to accomplish. We, we would have liked to have done a little bit more if it were possible, but you know, we knew going in that it was a a particularly robust seller's market. And, you know, it turned out to be a little bit on the quiet side around the league. You know, it's with a few exceptions, there weren't you know a ton of offensive players made available. And, 
you know, I, we suspected that might be the case. I, I think in a 30-team league, you had as many as 20 teams that were, you know, in, in ad mode. You had maybe another five that were in straddle the line mode until, you know, the very end. And and there were only five or six clear sellers in the market. And for for the better part of the trade deadline period, those five or six teams really may not have had you know, the, the types of players that typically put you over the edge in a, in a postseason push. So it, it created a little bit of a slower drag and you know, it picked up quite a bit the, this week. But in general, I think a pretty quiet deadline by the standards of trade deadline. Jerry, as we look in the rearview mirror, it feels somewhat similar. You may tell me it's totally different, but it feels somewhat similar to me from the outside of what the trade market was like in the offseason, especially when it came to hitters. In a market, in a market, you know, bears what the market is willing to bear. In, is the market now, from a trade standpoint, just so much heavier in the arms than it is teams really willing to deal a difference making young bat? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. It, it varies from team to team. It varies by what you're willing to part with to, you know, to, to get something. And, and I think in this particular case, it was affected a great deal by the fact that there are so many teams that are still within shouting distance of that, you know, that, that postseason line, so to speak. So, and that is in both leagues. You know, there are a number of teams that have a real shot at, at, you know, chasing that wild card and, and teams want to compete. They want to win. And I think as a result, not a lot of bats were, were changing addresses. And it may have been the case in the off season. I didn't sense it was quite as, as difficult in the off season as it is now, but uh, you know, a lot of guys changed addresses over these last few days. So it wasn't, it wasn't a zero. What, uh, how did you decide to deal Paul Seawald? Uh, you know, we went into the deadline with the idea that we were going to see if we could maximize, you know, the, the bring back in any kind of policy wall deal. And we knew the holes that we wanted to fill moving forward. So, you know, whether that be smaller deals or targeted deals with other teams to find short term help, uh, you know, we wanted a, a second baseman, preferably left handed hitter. We wanted, you know, to add in the outfield. And we were able to find a marriage with Arizona. We had, I think, to, to be fair, three teams that we considered to be finalists. And we felt like dealing from a strength, which has been our bullpen for multiple years, and and maximizing a return with controllable players we could move forward with uh, was an important step for us as an organization. And, and we found a trio of players that we thought fit our roster very well. We didn't trade for faraway prospects. We traded for guys that step on the field, and we feel make us better today and into 24 and beyond. Just out of curiosity, without you know giving away the teams or the players that were also in the mix there, were the packages similar or were they styled differently in terms of number of players or proximity to the big leagues, et cetera? Uh, all those things, you know, each team you deal with, because they are also, you know, the Diamondbacks are also contending right now. So you're trying to thread a needle there. And as a matter of fact, every team that we talked to who had interest in Paul Seawald was a contending club. So you're you're in a, a unique situation where the best value that you're going to get for Paul Seawald at a trade deadline is coming from a contending club while you also see yourself as a contending club. And you know, I we we love the the package that we were able to get. We thought it was the most impactful that we could that we could you know 
bring in with Dom Canzone and, and Josh Rojas and Ryan Bliss. It gives us an outfielder to grow with. He's 25 years old, big tools. We think he can really hit. You know, Josh Rojas is a year removed from a very good season in Arizona. Two solid seasons in his first two. And, you know, this year battled through an injury and hasn't played to his level. But we think this is a great bounce back candidate with defensive skills who can really run the bases and, and gives us a patient on base, you know, presence in our lineup. And Ryan Bliss is a fun player for tomorrow. You know, he's a 23-year-old infielder who has destroyed the upper levels of the minors this year can hit, can get on base, has a little power, and he can really run and, and gives us another element. And I don't know if that happens in September or sometime in 2024, but not too far away. What was that final conversation like with Paul? Uh, Paul was great. You know, and, and this was this was not a surprise to Paul or to anyone in our clubhouse. I, I think it was it was understood that this was, you know, these are the times when as a player, you know what, what's happening in the market. And Paul was very much in demand. We had as many as 15 teams reach out on him. And it was a, a long deadline period to to get to the point where we thought these were the best deals we could do. We were patient in allowing it to form. And then sitting down with Paul, you know, first thing that I said to Paul, Scott shared his thoughts and, uh, and I shared mine, which is, you know, we can't be thankful enough for, for what he did here. And he was awesome for us for three years. And I said to him, I don't know who's going to pitch the ninth inning for us tonight, but we'll figure it out. We've got good group down there. And, and, and I really do feel like this is, this is an opportunity for us to get better. And, and he said, that is, he said, that's your job. Your job is to make the Mariners better. My job is to pitch. And, you know, he said, I've loved it here. I'll go pitch for the, the Diamondbacks and it'll always be a part of me that, that's a Mariner. And he's a pro. He's a great guy. And it's a, and I wish him nothing but the best. As savvy and smart as he is, and we've gotten a chance to talk to him and he truly is one of our favorites. Just curious. Does he ever throw back to you guys and say, Hey, if there were 15 teams that called on me, what were some of the other? <laughs> and not that you need to share some of the others with us, but did you share it with him or Could does he I even ask? Yeah. No, frankly, no. <laughs> and then if you ask me, I won't tell you either because there's humans on the other end. Yeah. How repeatable is the Paul Seawald story? And I guess what I mean is finding a guy that has that kind of stuff that wasn't being utilized necessarily the best way and helping him unlock all of that potential. You know, to, to have it result in the kind of success that Paul experienced and then and, and contributed for us is that's got to be, you know, the, 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 the tip of the, the mountain or the top of the mountain. He's, his performance was phenomenal. It, it, he took to it very quickly and partly because you, as you said, very smart, you know, Paul came in as a willing participant, wanted to see what we could do to help him. And, and it worked out very well. He's committed to it. Uh, you know, that being said, he turned into one of the best relievers in the league for, for three year period. So to say that that's easily repeatable would be, you know, a little pompous. <laughs> and I think we're good at this. I do believe that we've, you know, experienced real gains with other guys and they're sitting in our bullpen right now, whether they be converted starters in the minor leagues, it's guys we picked up in smaller trades. It's, it's helping players take the next step in their career and and uh you know i'm i'm confident that our group can continue to do that will it result in another paul seawald story 
I don't know. You know, I, I sure hope so, but I can't say that that's a certainty because of how good Paul was. I listened to Justin after the deadline on with uh, with our afternoon show with Wyman and Bob, and I heard him say that it might be time to kind of look at the process that led to some of the acquisitions over the years. I, I just wanted to follow up on it because I didn't know exactly what that meant or some of the conversations you guys have maybe had in the background about how to how to help that help, help fine tune that process. We're doing the best we can to put a team on the field every year that that has a chance to compete and to go win. We're trying to manage present major league talent with future major league talent that's coming through our systems. We're trying to build bridges. We're trying to create, we're trying to create lineups that work versus rights and versus lefts. We're trying to do all of that. And, and every year we revisit our process or processes, no matter, you know, we go through and we sit down in August every year, our front office takes a trip with the major league club. We kind of sequester ourselves in a big boardroom at a hotel and we talk through our process and what does that look like? So Justin's not, Justin's not informing you that we're going to go in and recreate our machine. We do this annually. We, we recheck our systems and our programs, our decision-making and our process, we determine what went right, what went wrong, and then we try to do something a little bit different to solve the wrongs and, and then double down on the rights. Help me. Uh, I want to I learn a little bit more about the players you did acquire and starting with Canzone, who we've had a chance to see a little bit of. I just see the body and immediately and the swing. It just reminded me uh, so much of Hunter Pence and, and just that style. What, what kind of a player are you hoping he is? You know, I hope it turns out to be Hunter Pence because that would be a grand slam for us. <laughs> Hunter was an awesome player. But, uh, you know, Dom is, as a left-handed hitter, he's got a little bit of a, of a whippy swing. He's got a, a slender athletic build. He can run a little bit. He can throw a lot. He has. A, he's a good defensive outfielder who also plays first base, and he has hit wherever he's gone. He barrels the ball. He uses the gaps. He's got over-the-fence power. And, and he's pretty accurate with his swing. You know, he's a very aggressive hitter, but he barrels it a lot. And, you know, it's a, it's not the stand in the box, patient, work counts, grind it type of, of bopper in the corner. This is a field hit, whip the bat. We feel like has a chance to, to really grow. And we feel like he has a swing that suits our ballpark, you know, his, He's got that pull side whip and, you know, that the low line drives. He's also, as you, as you've seen in, in his first couple of days here as a Mariner, he's got some lift to the opposite field, to the gap. And it's, it's sneaky strong when it comes off the bat. And, you know, we're, we're really excited about what his upside potential is. We thought, you know, one of the more interesting targets uh, during the, the trade deadline in general and a great fit for us. How about, uh, how about the young second baseman? Uh, the kid out of, I believe he's War Eagle, certainly not Roll Tide. Uh, he's the one that we're not talking about maybe the most because we've seen now Rojas and Canzone. How about Bliss? Uh, Ryan is a former second-round draft pick, like you said, out of Auburn. I think he's he is a guy who, like so many of our targets, went through a bit of a swing chain change recently. And, you know, he, he came into pro ball as a pretty celebrated player you know had a very good career at Auburn particularly his launch year or or draft year um, and did it in the SEC against very high competition he's not a big physical guy you know Ryan's five six five seven but he's athletic and strong he has 
sneaky power for a guy his size, has always been able to hit and move the ball around the field, changed his swing a little, added some lift, added some exit velo, and, you know, he's hitting the ball as hard or harder than he's ever hit it. And he's also a runner. You know, he's a, he's a multi-position defender, plays shortstop, second base. We think he's going to wind up at second base. And on a 80 scale, 20 to 80 scale, we think he's about a 60, 65 runner. Mm-hmm. So it's a different type of, of player than we've had at second base in, in recent years as a, you know, it's a speed, defense, move it around, hit tool type of player that that we're really excited to add to this. You're not going to let him pitch, are you? I saw that his his, uh, his bio still says relief pitcher on it. Yeah, we're going to pass on the pitch and okay, just good. let him focus on hitting and, and playing second base. In the I wasn't sure if we had sort of a second base Shohei Otani on our hands. I wasn't sure what this was going to look like. Hey, you, you entered this deadline without Jared Kelnick uh, for, for some time. Did that affect the players you chose or the way you approached this deadline? Uh, not at all. You know, we, we were going for the best talent we could bring back in return, knowing that we wanted to create a bridge headed into our offseason. You know, and that bridge included backfilling second base, adding to our outfield depth, increasing the depth in our lineup. And and as I've said, we wanted to be good in 20. We think we have a good team. And, you know, we've, we thought we had a good team on opening day. We didn't play well in the first half. We are playing well now. And, you know, we want to be respectful of what our team is telling us. So we weren't inclined to, to go make wholesale changes. We didn't want to, to pawn off every, you know, pending free agent, move them down the road to, to add as much future talent as we could. We wanted to be precise in the future talent that we were targeting and, and go out and, and find players that we thought suited us. And, you know, and Dom and Ryan and Josh suit us. And, you know, and Trent Thornton, it was quiet and a little earlier in the week, but he suits us. These are, they're players that, that do the things that we value, and, and we feel like they just make us a better team. Are we going to see Dom play some first base? Yeah, I think you will. I, I don't know that you're going to see it, you know, today or tomorrow, but it's a, it's part of the package with Dom. He does it, you know, we think he does it pretty well. It gives us a chance to give Ty a little bit of a blow from time to time, which has never really been in the cards, especially against tougher right-hand pitching. And, you know, when, when Ty's going good, he can play and hit against anybody. And, and sometimes, you know, even the best of us need to day off. And he hasn't had a ton of those opportunities because it wasn't an area of depth for us. And, and it just got a little bit deeper. Last thing for me, and thank you as always for all of this time, Jerry, suits us. I kind of like the way you frame that. It suits us. It feels to me through your drafts, uh, through these acquisitions, what's suiting you guys is a lot of athleticism. Am I overreading that? Because I see a lot of speed, a lot of dynamic athleticism, maybe with some rule changes in baseball, and since he showed us this this year and Arizona's shown us this year, that, that athleticism may play a little bit more. Yeah, and so we've, and this dates back to, to when I arrived in 2015. We have, you know, slowly but surely been getting more and more athletic. And, and our scouting group, Scott Hunter, Frankie Thon, Brendan Damaraki, do a phenomenal job of, of finding players that do the things that, that we love. It's, you know, finding guys like Dom, like Josh, like Dylan Moore, like, you know, Jose Caballero. And I could go on, Julio Rodriguez. Jared Kelnick, we feel like the the next version of the Mariners, and maybe what's you know starting to evolve as this version of the Mariners, is a fun team that can move on the bases, that can take the two bags, that can score from first on an extra base hit, and 
Uh, it's, it's the game that we want to play. And, and sometimes you have to work through and build the bridges on your roster, you know, to, to make that possible. And, and athletes, they work and, and we're getting more athletic. It's not deadline specific at all, but I, I just got to ask about him based on the last week or so. And that's JP Crawford. Where is his toughness at? I mean, I just I see him foul two balls off his knee over the course of two games and later that same game make an unbelievable diving catch. Where would you be without J.P. Crawford right now? Uh, I, I don't know, but we can go back to revisiting some offseason conversations and to as to the, the sanity of our committing to J.P. We love mm-hmm. J.P. And his toughness, his leadership, the fact that he shows up every day, it, it matters. And, and he's having his best season. He is, uh, I can't imagine having been rewarded more than he has for the hard work he did this offseason. You know, he, he really committed to doing some different things in his offseason prep. And it's showing up. I mean, a 780, I think, OPS in, in that general range with more power than he's ever shown. He's, he's hitting the ball, spraying it around the field and showing his typical excellent strike zone judgment and, and doing it at the top of the lineup pretty consistently. And you know, he's been an on-base presence and, and he, he's always there for you. You know, it's, uh, he, he may not consistently win gold gloves, but he has the, the ability to win a gold glove. And when the final play, as, as evidenced the other night against the Red Sox, when the final play, you want them to hit the ball to J.P. Crawford because he's the guy that has the, the belly to get it done. It was a heck of a play, and to do it just a few minutes after he had uh, taken that ball off his knee, I just thought was incredibly impressive. Jerry, appreciate you uh, you coming on and, and talking through all this stuff with us. We will do it again next week. You got it, guys. Yeah, it's Mariners President of Baseball Operations, Jerry Depoto. And by the way, can we get a little shout-out and some love for Eugenio Suarez? I don't think I realized when they're talking about Iron Man over there and giving Ty France a blow. I didn't think I realized until yesterday that Suarez has played in every game this season. Wow. All 109 games. And now he a keeps lot. producing an RBI in nine straight games. Can you believe that? A guy who's played in 109 straight games. And the beard is perfectly manicured every day. You're right. Actually, it takes man, a lot of dedication. From a guy who has a pretty good beard going right there. Yeah, thank I, know, you. I know it's not football, but... Th- yeah, you're right. The Iron Man Award and just the mental aspect of what that takes because the amount of times and the hours as a Mariner that you spend on airplanes to then go out and try to play at the highest level. The next, Good every vibes only. Day, it tough. must be. And I think it's it's more jarring to then see like, okay, no one's coming close to Cal Ripken's streak <laughs> no, because no, no way. people get days off yeah. and people, you know, get nicked up. And I don't think it's prudent now. I mean, in all sports, right? We've talked about how technology has evolved and everyone deals with maintaining and re- the importance of rest and the importance of saving your best at the end of the season and a long grind of an NFL season now 17 games that you don't want to rush someone back like a Ken Walker he might be dealing with injury you know if Jordan Brooks or Jamal Adams we'll get into that more at, at 8 30 but if it's worth starting them on pup because you need them fresh at the end of the year you might have to and so for Eugenio Suarez to go out there and play 109 games yeah, it's pretty impressive, but it does pale in comparison to back in the day, Brady, when Cal Ripken would go uh, 2,632 2,600. I mean, that, that's just it's hard to wrap your head around that. And it's hard to imagine somebody, um, you know, ever coming close to that. I, I know, you know, in other sports, you got the load management thing. MLB is not doing that. But they're, I mean, guys get regular days off. And then there's, you know, like sometimes life 
gets in the way. Mm-hmm. You know, daughter, a kid is born. You got a graduation to go to. You get sick. Like, it's just remarkable to think that a guy could play in 2,600 straight games without something happening along the way. And there's, you know, there's the famous stories about, uh, you know, the near misses, or there was one famous near miss that he had. There was sort of the, some myth surrounding that, right? Uh, Cal Ripken. But, um, yeah, it's uh, it's just crazy, and it's hard to imagine somebody ever coming close to that. Yeah, uh, it's it's certainly impressive. So yeah, good stuff there from Jerry and Salk and Brock and the Mariners. Uh, they look good. They look good right now. Fifty-seven and fifty-two after Cade Marlowe Grand Slam gave him a comeback win over the Angels. They are a season high five games over five hundred. Uh, a little more on the Mariners coming up. Also have some Seahawks things to get into. Uh, Brady, real quick, we talk about the NFL a lot. There was an NFL game that happened yesterday. The Hall of Fame game. It's early August. There was a football game. Did you watch it? Are you are you that much of an NFL sicko that you're like, I have to sit down and get ready for the Hall of Fame game? No, I mean it kind of started early here because it, it's yeah. you know in the Midwest and Canton. And so no, I was I was still doing Seahawks stuff and um no, I'm not that much of a sicko to where I'm gonna I mean, I'll watch some random golf tournament, you know, <laughs> like the college kids playing in some tournament, but I'm not I'm not this much of a sicko. I'm there's gonna be a lot of football I'm watching over the next few months, so did anyone not quite did, I watched some of you it did. before I turned on the Mariners game, yeah. Okay. So it was just more of like to fill time. It wasn't like I need to have the two split screens going. Well, no, it was just I always get excited for football and then I start watching those games and I'm like, Yeah, this you're is like, horrible. Oh, the product is not good. <laughs> well and then they had a delay. Before the second half started, like the lights went out, a bank of lights went out, and they were delayed for nearly twenty minutes. So I can't think of anything worse than an early preseason game. You're sitting around, and then the game's delayed. Yeah, these preseason games have a way of dragging on, and I, I sometimes equate them to when you're in a conversation with somebody and they're just talking and talking, and you're not interested in what they're saying, and you tune them out, and then like a few minutes later, you sort of come to. And you realize, wow, this person's still talking. That's what some of these preseason games feel like, where it's like, wow, I feel like I've been watching this for five hours, and you're still like early in the third quarter. Do you think were you talking about me there? No. Okay. No. 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 That's <laughs> no. That's the first thing that went through my head. I'm like, uh oh. No. I can ramble. Not. I've been known to ramble at times. The but, Iron uh, Man of rambling. The Iron Man of rambling. Well, that's radio in general. Uh, no, I know what you mean there. And then they're just yeah. going and going, and you. You uh, come to and you're like, oh, yeah. uh huh. And, yeah, exactly. and you said, like, wow, and crazy. Like, that's crazy. You know, a bunch <laughs> Just of those times. spacers, those fillers to yeah. let them know you're still engaged yeah. in the conversation. But your or brain so is on think. autopilot. Yeah. That does happen a lot. There are a lot of uh, blissfully unaware people out there that do that. You know uh, who you are yeah, out there. You do know who you are. I wasn't going to say anything, but Brady just Actually, said Actually, they don't know who you they know are. You know who you are. They don't know who they are. That's the problem. You're right. yeah. <laughs> they don't. And then they'll keep doing it over and over and over again. So uh, they don't know who they are, but. We suffer through it. Like early preseason football, we suffer through the long-winded conversationalists. All right, we are going to get back to the Seahawks and two big position battles that Brady and I are going to look at before the mock game today. It is the Brock and Salk Show on Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app.